0: So today we're celebrating the great Christian festival of Pentecost. But actually, originally, it was a Jewish festival. Word comes from uh, the Greek word for the 50th day. It was the Jewish feast of weeks, sometimes called the feast of harvest or the day of first fruits, which fell on the 50th day after the feast of Passover. But for Christians, it marks the coming of the Holy Spirit. The birth of the church and the beginning of the spread of the message of the gospel about Jesus Christ. And it begins here in Jerusalem. Jesus has just ascended to heaven and his disciples had been waiting until Pentecost when all the Jewish pilgrims from the ancient world were in the city. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, so too did the Holy Spirit who poured himself out on the disciples like a great wind with tongues of fire something like flames appeared on their head. And they started telling each other stories and other people's stories about Jesus and his mighty deeds. They spoke in different languages that they didn't know before. But all the people could understand. And this this morning, more than anything else, this is what I want you to take home from the last of our Holy Spirit sermons. And that, that is that at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit... Shows us that he makes things new. The Holy Spirit makes things new. One of Germany's greatest poets, Goethe, vividly captured the spirit of Pentecost and he wrote that it was a time of greening and blooming in fields, woods, hills, mountains, bushes, and hedges, of birds singing new songs, meadows sprouting fragrant flowers and of festive sunshine gleaming from the skies and colouring the earth. Goethe's prose is right and true. Pentecost is about the joy of new life, which in the northern hemisphere is visual at this time, uh, fragrantly manifest in the spring. Most of all, the sending of the, the Spirit at Pentecost was about change. It was about making things new. It was about the Spirit disrupting the old order. The old order of new thing, of things and ushering in a new openness. The spirit is the new wine in the old wineskins and the new cloth on the old garment. It's the new growth of flowers on a bushfire after it's been black and then you see the green sp- sprouts coming through. The spirit equals new life. Those who want everything just to always remain as it is should not get involved with the Spirit because the ministry of the Holy Spirit makes all things new. (coughs) So this morning, what I want to say is this. Pentecost reveals that the Holy Spirit makes things new. He gives us a new purpose, a new kind of family, and a new heart. Let's look at the new purpose we get. Chapter 1 of Acts tells us... uh, That before Jesus ascended, the disciples looked at him impatiently and said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel, Jesus? Is it going to happen now? Even after all he had said and done, they still thought he was going to be a political revolutionary. Jesus' response to them was this. It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has sent by his own authority, but you will receive power When the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus gave them a new mission and this would be their purpose in life. Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit will come on you soon. When? Well, you're just going to have to wait for that. But I promise you that it's going to happen and you'll be given a new purpose and a new power to go starting here in Jerusalem, telling people about Jesus And just you'll just keep going out into the whole of the world What Jesus is saying here is in fact The disciples' purposes But it's also our purpose We still live in this Pentecost period, post-Pentecost period The period between The two comings of Jesus Jesus came once Pentecost happened We live in that time now And we're waiting for Jesus to come a second time in between these two advents of Jesus, we have a purpose to participate in this mission of going out. Everyone wants to find a purpose in life. It's the question you know that I remember in my early 20s, I prayed about a lot, talked to a lot of people about. And even we can go on for, for many decades and struggle to know what our purpose in life is. And um, it's something that is a big thing for all human beings. And some of us work out our purpose through our career. And, and that's great. If you can find a job that really gives you a sense of purpose, that's a good thing. When you have a sense of purpose in your work, then you love getting up on Monday and you have your coffee and you have your breakfast and you get your suit on and then you go out and you've got a sense of purpose in your career. You, you don't care as much about your payment. If you've got a job that you are passionate about that gives you a sense of purpose, you don't care about your payment. It's great. It's great to have a sense of purpose in your job. Some of us get a sense of purpose in our family. It's not for everyone. Some people find their purpose in the single life. But for some people, they do find a sense of purpose in having a family and children. And kids are great. And there's nothing wrong with having a sense of purpose in your family. Some of us get a sense of purpose in our artistic pursuits. I identify with you too. But the mission of of Jesus, the mission that he gives us, the purpose that he gives us, has to sit for the Christian like an umbrella over all of those things. If we have a sense of purpose in our job or in our family or in our artistic pursuits, that's okay. But they need to submit to this greater purpose that Jesus gives us. If you're trying to work out what to do with your life, if you're trying to discern your ultimate purpose, Make sure that whatever you're doing or whatever you want to do fits inside this great mission that Jesus first gave before, on the, his last day on earth before he ascended into heaven and still applies today to be one of Jesus' Holy Spirit-empowered witnesses in the world. You can actually still pursue the career of your dream to a point, depending on what it is, of course. You can try anything, really. The career that God has wired you up for to be a, you know, a school teacher or a dentist or whatever it is, but make sure that whatever relationship status, whatever career you have, um, that you, it somehow enables you to participate in God's mission to the world. You want to be able to make sure that your that your career actually can serve God in some kind of way. Same thing with your relationship status. You can still pursue a life of singleness or marriage and either way you can serve God in either of those relationship status you you might have kids if you if you can have kids that's that's great but make sure that whatever relationship status you have is that it enables you to somehow participate in God's mission in the world the same thing with your artistic pursuits to be a writer or a musician or an actor or a painter Whatever artistic pursuit you have, make sure that it somehow enables you to participate in God's mission in the world. One reason why it's really important that all of these things need to submit to the greater purpose is that they're all vulnerable. So if you make your whole purpose your career, that's very risky because your career could be taken away from you and then you lose your purpose. But the mission of God will remain. So it's much better just to... Put all our eggs in the basket of God's mission to the world and have those other things submit. The same thing with your family or your relationship status. That's vulnerable. Um, Who knows what's going to happen down the track in your life? Your artistic pursuits might get you nowhere, but Jesus' mission will never change. So the day that Jesus promised would happen finally happened. Look at verse 2. The disciples have been sitting together in one place, waiting and praying, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Things are starting to break open. What is going on? There is a sound of a supernatural wind. A little bit, maybe it's like the wind that blew over the earth when the earth was created, hovering over the chaos. Is that the same wind? Potentially. Things are being brought to life, just like they did at the creation of the world. There's also a supernatural visual display, tongues like fire. Look at verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This is none other than the promised Holy Spirit. John the Baptist said that he only baptised with water, but Jesus, or the Messiah would come, which ended up being Jesus, as we know, who will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And this is what's happening here, isn't it? The visual display of that promise of John the Baptist. Not only did Jesus give them instructions on what their purpose will be in life, but now the Holy Spirit's come in to empower them to do this. And last week, you will remember, uh, and in our Holy Spirit series, one of the things the Holy Spirit does is he energizes us to do things. And that's what's going on here. So the Holy Spirit gives us a new purpose which is to participate in Jesus' mission to the world. Secondly, the Holy Spirit gives us a new family. We see this at Pentecost. The wind and the fire in in this story makes us think of God's glorious, fiery presence filling the temple. This is connected to the prophetic promises that God would come and live by his spirit in the new temple of the Messianic kingdom. Now at Pentecost... God's fiery presence comes to dwell not in a building anymore, but in his people. The people are the new temple. This new temple promised by the prophets is Jesus' new covenant community, the new covenant family, the people of Jesus. At the end of Acts 2, verse 44, we see a picture of what this family looks like as They lived together. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. The culture that we live in here in Melbourne is obsessed with community and is always trying to build community. So, uh, you know, when we go off to Kick on a Saturday morning, it's an attempt to build community. When we, uh, you know, belong to uh, art classes and go, go to festivals, music festivals, this is all attempt to build community. But the, the new community that the Holy Spirit builds is far superior to anything that an art class can build or Auskick can build. And this new community, this new covenant family, is still being built today. If you are a Christian, you belong to that family. It's tighter, it's more deep than any community you can get anywhere in any social club. In fact, it's like unlike any other community organisation because the Holy Spirit breaks down cultural barriers. The Old Testament prophets had promised that when God came to dwell in his new temple that he would reunify all the tribes of Israel under the Messiah. And the good news of God's reign would go out and be announced among all the people. And Luke describes in this passage in Acts 2, in detail, all the international multi-tribe makeup of all the people who had descended on Jerusalem that were there that very day when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and who responded to uh, the Apostle Peter's invitation to become followers of Jesus. There were Greeks there, there were Arabs, there were Jews, there were people from Asia, men and women whom the Spirit poured out on. The apostles, they called Jesus their Messiah. Peter, preachers, and all these people from the different tribes and nations respond, forming new communities, new families, and they go out themselves, and the mission has begun. It's an amazing image. Last year when I went on my tour of Germany and Switzerland to look at the historical sites of the European Reformation, the last place we went to was the International Museum of the Reformation in Geneva. It's quite an amazing sort of boutique museum and very modern in in its style. And um, as we got to the end, the, the very last um, part of the exhibition, you walk down into a basement and there's this big multi-television display and so you can imagine you know, I think it was like about 12 televisions um, in, in a kind of a rectangle shape and each television had a different video image of Christians from around the world that would, would have been Protestants because it's a Reformation History muse- uh, Museum and there were Christians from different parts of the world celebrating and worshiping God in their own way. And, and so each TV had different um, cultures represented. And it was quite a moving experience to see what these promises were made about what God would do, fulfilled the, the multi-ethnic, multicultural, multinational tribe of, of Jesus spread throughout the world. Celebrating Jesus. I saw footage of the Chinese underground church, mega church Pentecostals, African Christians dancing in traditional dress, middle class Presbyterians, the formality of the Church of England, Southern Baptists, Australians. It was amazing to see, very emotional. And this was a visualisation of the unstoppable power of the Holy Spirit of Pentecost. It pointed to the heavenly community united by the grace of God, the communion of saints, a glimpse of the great multitude of heaven from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. If you are passionate about diversity, if you are a person who wants to see justice in representation, you want to see people of different cultures and skin colours and economic status and gender represented in the community and in leadership and in politics and in commerce, the arts and sport, then notice the Holy Spirit has already thought of this. God is already doing this in the church. Now, I agree that not all congregations necessarily represent the complete diversity of of the world's tribes. But when the churches get together, you do see that diversity. When, for example, um, you go to a church conference, you do see the diversity of the worldwide church. That's why at um, church conferences it's often awkward. I don't know if you've ever been to a church conference. It's it's awkward because you've got these different church cultures together and age groups and ethnicities worshipping and... It's often a, a bit of a Frankenstein of a worship approach because you try and please everyone, and there are songs that nobody understands, and the preaching style is often not the style that you're used to. And but despite the awkwardness, the bond of the Holy Spirit overrides all of that, and there's something profound about looking over across the room and seeing a person with a different coloured skin to you, a person of a different age, a person who dresses differently to you. This is the new family that you get from the Holy Spirit this is the new covenant community the multi-tribe, multinational diverse community of the Holy Spirit and lastly the Holy Spirit gives us a new heart the Holy Spirit gives us a new purpose a new family and a new heart now if we were to have the sound of wind suddenly coming to this room right now and fire was to appear over our heads we would no doubt be freaking out We would be very scared. We'd be running and crying in the corner. But instead of being scared, the people in this story are not scared. Uh, The Holy Spirit seems to bring comfort to those who receive the Holy Spirit and who have the fire appear above their heads. And they're so excited and, 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 and joyful that they're proclaiming Jesus' name to everyone. The Spirit seemed to give the disciples power to speak in other languages, other tongues, The different languages represented by the diverse crowd—it was kind of a reversal of Babel. You remember back to the story of Babel in Genesis, when the people tried to do things their way, God put a stop to it by confusing their languages. But now, in Pentecost, the people of God do it God's way, and God enables them to understand the different languages. It's a reversal of Babel. The different nations, from the Parthians, now called Iran, through to Rome, ethnic Jews, converts to Judaism. This diverse multi-ethnic crowd could all say to each other, We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. And verse twelve, amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? But some of the crowd are not amazed at all. They mock the religious enthusiasm. They have had too much wine. The Christians are drunks. Notice that what the church calls the gift of the God's power, the Holy Spirit, the world calls being inebriated. The inbreaking of the spirit is profoundly unsettling for people. Deeply confronting. So they have to come up with an explanation. It must be booze. Did you notice, oh, we have to talk about the Royal Wedding. Did you notice um, last night, I know you were all watching it, even those who said, I'm not going to watch the wedding. I know you watched it and have secretly got your phone out and looked at it during the sermon. Did you notice at the wedding last night, as the American Episcopalian preacher, uh, Michael Curry, you know, black American preacher, got up, it was, it was a great clash of cultures, wasn't it? Such a... A cocktail, it was like Mary Creek, the Anglican and the American gospel together, anyway. Sort, sort of, sort of the same. Um, do you know, the American, yeah, he's going on and he's doing the yeah, all right, you know, he's doing that thing, and it's just, just bizarre watching it. And the triple A crowd, you know, as in the celebrities and politicians and royals gradually giving each other funny looks, you know what I mean. He's getting a bit too excited. And there's already memes on Facebook. Within about five minutes of the sermon finishing, there were memes on Facebook. Of, you know, funny look. You know, I think William went like this at one point. The thing is, he's getting excited about his faith. And it sort of looks weird in that context when we're used to British royal weddings, everyone being very stoic. People want to have a bit of a kind of a smirk bit of a mock, and perhaps you've been mocked at one time or another for your faith, for getting a bit too excited about being a Christian, for going to church on a Sunday morning and missing some party that you (laughs) were supposed to be at, or, or going, holding to a different moral view to your friends, or mocked for just believing in the Bible. Be comforted in the knowledge that you are not alone, and that from day one of the church mockery occurred. Day one, since the very first day the Holy Spirit arrived and gave birth to the church. And this pattern of the Spirit empowering and inspiring the apostles to teach people about Jesus, followed by questions from the crowd, then followed by bewilderment and then scorn, and then some becoming Christians and some rejecting it, this pattern repeats itself all through the book of Acts as you go on to read it. And also, this pattern continues today. So when the gospel is preached today, some believe and some reject. Peter, who had been illuminated by the Holy Spirit, if you remember what that means from a few weeks, weeks ago, the Holy Spirit enabled him to understand the gospel and to speak it. Um, he was filled with the Spirit. He also was filled to speak with boldness. Peter recites the prophecy from Joel uh, Diana read out the start and uh, in the last days from verse 17 in the last days God says I will pour out my spirit on all people your sons and daughters will prophesy your young men will see visions and old men will dream dreams Joel goes on to say that there will be signs and wonders and fire from heaven just as there was Pentecost that day and then he goes on to teach about Jesus of Nazareth came to, and fulfilled the prophecy of Joel and performed signs and wonders and, and then they put him to death nailing him on the cross, verse 23, and then verse 24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to, um, to keep its hold on him. And this resurrection, says Peter, was a fulfilment of Psalm 16 of David. In this psalm, the poet rejoices because God does not leave him abandoned in the realm of the dead. And Peter points out in his speech that uh, David who wrote this, in actual fact, he did die and is still dead, and even though even they knew where his tomb was, that seems to be the case. But David's hope was divinely inspired. He looked forward to the day when God's Messiah would not be held in the grave, but would rise from the dead. And that day did come. Look at verse 32. Peter says, God has raised his Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. And this point is what gives us confidence, gives me confidence, certainly, that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Because only 50 days after it first happened, Peter uses it as a kind of um, a card in his sermon. And you're not going to get away with that 50 days after the event if it didn't happen, are you? The Gospel said that uh, 500 people witnessed Jesus' uh, resurrection. So there were the, there were those people would have been there on the day at Pentecost. There would have been people in the crowd who were witnesses to Jesus' re- resurrection. And there would have been people in the crowd whose friends and relatives were witnesses to the resurrection. Verse 36 says, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, And look at their response. Look at what happens to the heart of the listeners. Verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? The Holy Spirit worked his power that day to enable the hearers of the gospel to believe. And their hearts were changed. In verse 38, Peter replied, Repent. This is what you do now. You repent and you be baptised. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. The Holy Spirit was working in the hearts of the disciples, who were speaking with joy the message of Jesus. The Holy Spirit was working in the heart of Peter, who was speaking with power the message of grace. The Holy Spirit was working in the hearts of the hearers, softening their hearts, convicting them of their sin. And enabling them to believe. Then look at what happens in verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about three thousand were added to their number that day. Ezekiel 36:26, the prophet speaks the word of God saying, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And that's what happened on this day of Pentecost. From this day onward, the Holy Spirit has continued to change people's lives, shining his floodlight onto Jesus, turning people's hearts from stone to flesh, bringing people to salvation, enlightening people's hearts and minds to understand God, believing the gospel, and empowering people for a new purpose, And bringing them into a new family. So let's pray for the Holy Spirit's power to work in our church. Lord God, thank you so much for Pentecost. And we pray that we will be a church filled with your spirit. Empowered by your spirit. And that each one of us in our lives will know the newness that we have. By your spirit, a new purpose. A new family and a new heart. Amen.